If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the very end of Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at the last four, uh, about four verses of Luke 19, the first eight verses of Luke chapter 20. This is our second to last Sunday on our Resolved Sermon Series. So if you've been here off and on, you probably remember if this is your first time visiting, we have been uh, going through the second half of the Gospel of Luke. We've, we've flown through it. We haven't taken time to really study it. We're kind of hitting the high points, but we're looking at the lifetime of Jesus from when he resolves to go to Jerusalem, which says in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus resolved that he was going to go to Jerusalem in order to pay for your sins and for my sins. And we've been following him along the pathway and the things that he's taught, the people with whom he interacted, the experiences that he had uh, that further point to uh, his being resolved that he's going to bring redemption for folks like you and me. So this morning, uh, we've arrived, right? It's Palm Sunday. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Uh, the first part of the passage we're going to look at has uh, probably happened on that Sunday evening, uh, what we would call Sunday evening or late afternoon. And then uh, what we're going to read about in chapter 20 probably took place more than likely uh, on Monday, on that uh, the week before he went to the cross. Uh, but before we jump into this text, uh, a lot of you know that I, I got a little bit of a flu in January, but that uh, passed and, and uh, helped me uh, drop a few pounds, which invigorated me to go to the gym. And so for the month of February and the month of March, I've been going to the gym uh, on a pretty regular basis and, I, and I'm feeling much better. I've gotten to the point now where I go out of the gym and I don't faint. I don't fall over from having worked out. And that's really progress if you're me. But I was also, you probably know, our, our middle child, Katie, our daughter, lives in Hawaii, and I was there for two weeks in Mark. Now, Katie's husband, Richard, has one brother, and his brother's name is David, and David's about 18 months older than Richard. And the best way to describe them physically to you would be to say they're like um, Aztec sun gods, <laughs> okay? They are uh, chiseled. They are in great shape. In fact, they just, uh, Katie and Richard just had a baby a couple months ago, and Richard was bemoaning the fact that he hadn't been to the gym lately. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, really? It's like, I, I feel a little flabby. I'm like, yeah, you should probably go someplace else to share that information. But one day, Dave and Richard said to me, hey, Tom, you want to, we know you've been working out, you want to go to the gym with us? <laughs> with you two, right? How close do I have to stand to you while I'm working out? Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure that I, that I want that experience. So they're like, no, it'll be great. We're, we'll work out. We're going to, and it's a spa. You can kind of do the steam afterwards and it'll be really good. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I probably should. This would probably be a good thing to do. And clearly they, they're trying to encourage me, right? They're, they're not trying to show off. They're not trying to do harm. They're actually trying to help me. So Richard's like, yeah. And Tommy, it doesn't even matter how, you know, how many reps you can do right now. And I'm like, okay, that's great. What's a rep? Uh, I thought that was somebody who sold something. Like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to you know, kind of coach you up a little bit. So I went to the gym with them and ended up having a, a really great experience. Sometimes uh, when people speak into your life, they're doing so because they love you and because they want the best for you. And they want you to see yourself in a little bit different light than the way in which you normally look at yourself. And what we're going to see this morning in the life of our Lord Jesus is as he comes into Jerusalem, he has a, a whole crowd of folks that, that love him, that adore him, that are following him, right? And, and, and think he hung the moon. And then there's a whole other group of people that are his enemies, his skeptics, people that do not like him, people that, that wouldn't take him to the gym because they wanted what was best for him, right? These are people that are actually enemies. 
And yet Jesus treats everyone the same. He invites people to look at their lives through the lens of their relationship with him, which if, if we will do that, it really changes everything. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we come looking at our own lives. It'll be easy for us to look at these folks and kind of check the box off and say, well, we're not like that. But I believe that what the Lord wants to do is invite you and me, all of us, to look at our lives through the lens of our relationship with him because he loves us dearly and he wants us to experience new life in him. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45 and then reading through chapter 20, verse 8. Hear the word of God. And he, that being Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest, the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. These things mean primarily cleaning the, the, the money changers and the, the people selling animals out of the temple courts. He, he, he had cleared it out in, in a very aggressive fashion. And so part of what there are these things, you know, how dare you come in and disrupt our lives here? They said, tell us what authority, right? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was John's baptism, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. Uh, Father, for those of us who uh, are students or our family with students and we've been on spring break and we're, we're rested and getting ready to head back to school, uh, Lord, I thank you for the time off. I thank you for the, uh, the relaxation. Lord, some of us have, uh, have come from a busy week. We, we've been working and we've been uh, going 100 miles an hour. Uh, and it's perhaps a little bit difficult for us to kind of put on the brakes and slow down and listen to your word. Father, others of us are, are entering this next week with fear and with trepidation. Uh, others of us are distracted with the, the opportunities that are before us. But Lord, every one of us needs your word of life. And so we pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, hearts to emotionally connect with what you are saying to us. Father, your word is what is most important. We don't come here to listen to my philosophy uh, or my thinking. We come to hear the word of God. And so, Lord, we pray uh, to that end that you would teach us. Lord, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem. It's time to celebrate. Uh, however, some folks are probably not so sure they're happy that he's arrived. And so we want to look at this interaction 
uh, between Jesus and the, the leaders, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, and see how it may apply to our lives. As I mentioned earlier, uh, our sermon in a sentence is that Jesus challenges everyone whom he encounters. So that's including you and me this morning. Jesus is the risen, living uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's in our midst as we gather here to worship him, and he wants every one of us, he's going to challenge us to see ourselves through the lens of our relationship with him. So for some of you, you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. I've put my faith in him. I think the challenge for us this morning is, are we willing to look at kind of every nook and cranny of our lives? There are probably many, many ways that you are living and, and thinking as a faithful disciple of Jesus. But if you're like me, there are corners of your, of your house that you haven't quite allowed the Lord to clean up yet, right? There, there are some silos, perhaps, in your life that you're like, I'm not sure I'm ready to let go of this one. And Jesus says, you need to see all of your life in the context of, of, of your relationship with me. And then for others of us, perhaps we're, we're just thinking about Christianity. Perhaps we're just exploring it. We're just wondering whether Jesus is who he said he was. For those of us who are, who are in that boat, uh, the important thing for us to see here is the life that Jesus wants to give. That he understands the, the excuses that we make or the places where we push back or the, the challenges that we offer as reasons why we don't want to believe. And he just faithfully and lovingly keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. Uh, there's only one point to this sermon, but don't panic. I figured out how to make one point last about 25 minutes because I know many of you come here every Sunday and go, I hope he doesn't preach too short of a sermon. Uh, but the one point is simply, I, you can laugh at that. The one point is, is simply this. We want to look at Jesus and then we want to look at humanity. We want to look at Jesus and we want to look at humanity. And we see five observations in this text, both about Jesus and fundamentally about us. So the first is this, in verses 45 and 46, Jesus is zealous for God's worship, and because he's zealous for God's worship, he also is zealous for caring for other people. So it says, as he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. So what had happened was the religious leaders in Jesus's day in Jerusalem knew that they had the corner on the market. They knew that people had to come to the temple to offer their sacrifices. And Jewish folks came from all over the world. So there was a need to exchange money. There was a need to you know, take the money that I, I have from Rome and turn it into the local coins in order that I might buy a, a, a sheep or two turtle doves or whatever I was going to buy to offer as a sacrifice. So there were two opportunities here. One was to make money off the exchange and the other one was to make money off the sale of animals and they were doing both. And Jesus said, this is a temple where we come to worship God. This is not about you making money. This is about the worship of God. And Jesus is zealous for his father's house. But notice also that he says, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer. Prayer is where Jesus shows his love for you and for me and the people of that day. Because he, he was zealous for his father's worship, that automatically made him care for the people around him. And so he realizes that they're being robbed. <laughs> he realizes that, that they're not being treated fairly. And it's not just God's worship that's been abandoned, but because that's been abandoned, people are being abused. And Jesus says, both are wrong. The, the way for me to live my life is to worship God. And the more I worship God, 
the closer I connect with God, the better off the relationships in my life will be because I will have the attitude of God and not the attitude of Tom. And that's a really, really important thing, right? But as I pray, it doesn't, you know, my prayer life doesn't make God feel better about his godness, right? God doesn't say at the end of today, boy, I feel so much better as God because Tom prayed 15 minutes more today, right? It, 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 my prayer life does not impact the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but it impacts me, right? It changes my life. The more I pray, the more I love the people around me. The more I pray, the more convicted I become over my own sinfulness. The more I pray, the more compassion begins to take root in my life and actually work out in practical ways. The two go together. As I am zealous for worship, I end up caring for people. A friend of mine who is coming to town in a few weeks sent me an email. He's hoping that we could uh, get together, maybe have lunch while we're in town. He uh, does a ministry that kind of is around the world in many different places. And and this is how he started his email to me. I hope your Easter preparations are going well. Uh, I had a great trip last month to Columbia where my team and I were meeting with teens and church partners. We got to share the gospel with over a thousand students, exclamation point. I thought you would enjoy the attached pic. And then he has a a little smiley face. And the picture is of them worshiping God, right? And sharing the gospel with these students. And, And that's how I'm supposed to see my life. That's the lens through which I'm supposed to understand how I am to exist in this life. It is through the worship of God and therefore the care of others. The opposite of that is, is what the, 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 the leaders were doing in Jesus' day. So we have Jesus, what about humanity? Well, we've already mentioned it. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. What were they doing? They were looking out for their own gain. They, they were lining their pockets. They weren't caring for the worshipers right? They weren't caring for the people who had traveled, you know, many of them weeks to come to Jerusalem to worship. They were simply caring about themselves. This is the epitome of self-centeredness. The only equivalent I can find to it today, if you want to see how people are truly and and, and genuinely and consistently uh, self-centered, buy a plane ticket and go to the airport and go through this thing we call the boarding process, right? And it is kill or be killed, right? Now, Southwest Airlines, I fly mostly Southwest, they tried to figure out a way to humanize it, to make it more kind and make it more compassionate. So instead of giving you a seat assignment, you get an actual number. So there's A, B, and C, and then there's A, 1 through 60, B, 1 through 60, C, 1 through 60. So they say, okay, all the A's line up, and there's a spot. If you're A31, there's a spot for you to go and, and stand. There's A31. You don't move up and stand where 30 is, right? And you don't let, you don't let 32 get ahead of you, right? You keep them back there, right? Okay. You want to see like a riot in the making? Watch somebody who gets in the wrong. Watch if 31 accidentally stands in front of 30. Watch what happens. If, if 30 is a strong, lifelong, devote disciple of Jesus, they may some, something like, sir, madam, I'm, I'm sorry, I think you're in my spot. Could we, could we trade spots? I think you're behind me. If, if they're not, if they're just a normal person like, like me, right? It's like, you know, it's passive aggressive. So you might say something to the person next to you like, I wish everybody would stand where they're supposed to when, they're, when, they, when they go to stand where, where their numbers. Can you believe some people don't even bother to look at their boarding pass and see where they're supposed to be standing? I actually saw one time after the A's get on the plane, uh, people with small children get to board. I actually saw A60 almost knock over a toddler because he was afraid that she was going to get in front of him, right? Now, the other airlines, they board you in groups. So that's literally like a little riot 
going out and, and destroying property, right? Why? Why does that happen? You know what? If you fly, you know what I'm talking about. Why? Because we're self-centered. Because quite frankly, to be honest with all of you, in case you haven't realized this, I'm much more important than you, right? But you haven't realized that, so I have to fight for my rights. I have to push you out of the way. I have to make sure that I get what I believe I need and what I want. And that's what the leaders in Jesus' day were doing. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, right? And these guys are lying in their pockets. Why? Because they can. And, and they're looking out for themselves. But Jesus is zealous towards God's worship care for people. Secondly, Jesus is engaging in the most important issues of life. Look at verses 47 and 48. He's teaching in the temple, right? And they're coming up and they're looking for a way to destroy him, but they can't find any. Why? Because all the people were hanging on his words. What's Jesus doing? He's talking about that which is most important. He's talking about, about life. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about grace. He's talking about mercy. He's talking about what, what it really means to be in a relationship with the God of the universe who loves you, who cares for you, and wants, wants to gather you to himself, right? The psalmist says, as a hen gathers her chicks, that's how the Lord wants to gather us. And Jesus is sharing this message of, compa of compassion. And people are just hanging on every word, right? They're, 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 they're leaning forward. They, they don't want to miss it. If they're taking notes, they're scribbling as fast as they can possibly go. I, I tell folks all the time, you guys are good listeners, or at least you pretend to be good listeners, right? But, but I'm not kidding myself. You're not leaning forward like Tom's the best order we've ever seen, because I'm not. I'm, I'm maybe a little above average. But there are people that you listen to. There are people that I listen to. And you just, you want to catch every phrase because they speak with power and they speak with conviction and they speak to the depths of your soul. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's engaging in the key issues of life. What about his detractors? What are they up to? Well, we've already noticed this. They're seeking to destroy him. They're not interested in what he has to say. They're not remotely interested in thinking that I need to do some self-examination to discover whether or not the way I'm going about this is, is good for me or is bad for me. They're not going to entertain the idea that Jesus could possibly be Messiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're stubbornly, stubbornly clinging to their sinful choices. Perhaps you saw the, uh, the Matthew McConaughey movie uh, called Sahara. It came out a long time ago. It came out in 2005. I never thought I'd live to see the day where 2005 was a long time ago. But in this movie, uh, Matthew McConaughey plays the hero whose name is Dirk. What a, what a great name for hero, Dirk. And Dirk has a sidekick, and his sidekick's name is Al. And they're looking for, there's a river in, in, in Africa that's been poisoned, and they're trying to find uh, where the, the poison's coming from, because it's going to go out in the Atlantic Ocean, the whole world's going to be destroyed if a guy named Dirk doesn't come to the rescue, right? So they're in the middle of the desert, looking for the source of a river pollutant, which, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but they're also looking for a lost Civil War battleship that's filled with gold when it's sunk, Right? But they're riding on camels in the desert. And that's where we pick it up. And Al says to Dirk, hey, you know how it is when you see someone who you haven't seen since high school. And they got some dead-end job. They're married to some woman who hates them. They got like three kids who, who think he's a joke. Wasn't there some point in his life where he stood back and said to himself, Bob, Bob, don't take that job. Bob, don't marry that harpy, you know? And Dirk says, your point? And Al says, well, we're in the desert looking for the source of a river pollutant, using as our map a cave drawing of a Civil War gunship, which is also in the desert. So I was just wondering when we're going to have, when we're going to, have to sit down and reevaluate our decision-making paradigm. 
right? And Dirk says, I don't know, it seems to be working so far, right? There's this, this stubborn notion, right? We're in the desert looking for water, but I'm sure it'll all work out, right? And Jesus comes to us and, and, and he talks about the most important issues of life and eternity. And we say, oh, we got it from here. Thanks, Lord. We don't, we don't need it. We stubbornly cling to those sinful joy, choices. Thirdly, Jesus is committed to the good news of the gospel. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. That should actually say 20.1. One day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and what? Preaching the gospel. Now, Remember where Jesus is. He's in enemy territory. He's in dangerous Jerusalem. In about three days, he's going to lose his life. He's going to, uh, he's going to head to the cross. And yet here he is in, 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 the, in the enemy's uh, stronghold, right? In, in, their, in their backyard. And he is preaching the gospel. It would have perhaps made more human sense for Jesus to kind of water it down a little bit and kind of be nice to the powers that be. And then we get back to Galilee, we get back to our territory where we're a little bit safer and where we outnumber the enemy. Then we could come on and, and, and be hard chargers again. But Jesus, maybe you ought to tone it down. And the problem with that, Jesus says, is, well, that's not the truth. And I might have to give my life. I will. He knew that. But I'm going to speak the truth because these people need to hear the truth. And the truth is, is that we're lost. The truth is is that we stick with our rebellion, stubborn, sinful choices. We're going to die apart from God. And then we have to answer to him for those sinful choices. And Jesus is coming to preach compassion. And he says, "It's, it's important enough for me to preach what I preach at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. So if you go back to Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it says he came preaching and proclaiming the good news. Jesus is committed to making sure that you and I hear the gospel. Perhaps one of the greatest preachers that have ever lived in the last 2,000 years is uh, Charles Spurgeon, British preacher in the 19th century. He literally preached to thousands upon thousands of people every weekend in his church in London. And he was talking one time to a group of would-be preachers. He was talking to a group of, of seminary students, so to speak. And he was talking about how to preach. And he said this, I believe that those sermons which are, the, are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brothers, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. People have often asked me, what is the secret to your success? I always answer, I have no other secret but this, that I preach the gospel, not about the gospel, but the gospel, the full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brothers, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermon. You remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, I must tell you, I did not like it at all. For there was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road to London? 
Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ. And I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you're, you're preaching a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over hedge and ditch until I get at him. So must we do, brothers. We must have Christ in all our discourses, whatever else is or is not in them. There ought to be enough gospel in every sermon to save a soul, right? Where did Spurgeon get that? He got that from Jesus in front of the most powerful people in his generation who, who were going to eventually attack him and take his life. And he continued to preach the gospel, even though they did not want to hear it. Jesus was committed to the good news. What about his detractors? Well, we, we, they get into this odd conversation with Jesus, right? They're, they're trying to trip him up. And so while he's teaching and preaching the gospel, they say, hey, can we ask you a question? By what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? You know what they're saying? Who do you think you are, right? Where, where do you get off disrupting, uh, you know, everything that's going on around here? What are they doing? They're looking for any angle possible to escape. Again, they're not going to consider for one moment that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Rather, they're looking for a way out. They're looking for a way to reject him, and they're looking for a way to convince the people to reject him. Much like if you're, if you're a fisherman, and I don't mean like going to the pond and throwing a little hook and a worm, but I mean, you're actually a fisherman you really, or a fisherwoman, you really get after it. You know there's a huge difference between hooking a fish and landing a fish, right? Because that in-between time, the fish is going to do everything it possibly can to spit that hook out of its mouth. And I have almost caught some really big fish in my life. I mean, I mean really big ones, but doggone it, they got away just at the last second, right? These leaders... They're going to jump out of the water. They're going to go down low. They're going to go back and forth. They're going, to, they're going to use every ounce of energy in order to avoid dealing with Jesus' claim of Messiah. And yet Jesus is consistent all the way up to the very end. And fourthly, Jesus welcomes the truth. Look at verses 2 through 4. They ask God, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? He says this, well, let me ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. Now, it might feel like Jesus is dodging the question. It might feel like Jesus is trying not to answer their question, but I think actually what Jesus is doing is he's pressing them to wrestle with the truth. He's pressing them to maybe stop and ask themselves the question, what's actually behind this question that I'm asking? Am I really that concerned about the authority of Jesus, or am I really that concerned about the fact that if Jesus has authority, then it, it hampers mine? And, I, and I'm going to have to bow the knee to him. What's really being asked here? Jesus is driving at the truth, not just God's truth, but the truth of the sinfulness of their own hearts. And so they get together. They kind of huddle up over on the side, right? And in verses five through seven, they begin to have this little mini debate with one another, right? So they, they've asked Jesus this question. They get together and they say, okay, now look, if we say from heaven, then he's got us. But you say, well, why didn't, why didn't you believe in him? So we can't say that, right? Right, yeah, we can't say that. Okay, well, well, we can't say that it was from man because everybody in this place loves John the Baptist. They think he's a prophet. They'll literally pick up rocks and stone us. They will kill us if we say John was not from God. I mean, think about this, Cardinal fans. Would you tolerate for one second of your life someone saying something derogatory about the beloved Bob Gibson? 
Not going to happen, right? You're not going to tolerate some Chicago Cubs fan coming in here and, and talking about one of their guys and besmirching the name of Bob Gibson, who was the sole reason why the, the mound in baseball was lowered because of the season, right? You're not going to stand a bad word against Lou Brock or the Wizard, right? Why? Because they're our guys, right? And yet here we are with Jesus pressing in on the truth. And these guys saying, we, we, we can't say Something bad about John the Baptist because people will kill us. Instead of saying, you know what, fellas, maybe we missed this. Maybe he's who he said he was. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to, we need to go back and reevaluate this. No, what they do is they come back and they say, we don't know. We're, we're not sure. We, we can't figure that one out. And Jesus reveals the truth of their heart, that they're actually agenda-driven, that what they're after is getting their way. They're no more after the truth than, than I'm after flying to the moon this afternoon by, by flapping my arms together as hard as I possibly can. And they show the truth of their hearts, that they're, that they're after something beyond Jesus as Messiah. That's the one thing that they will not tolerate. And yet Jesus continues to press. And, and the fifth observation here is that Jesus insists that everyone look inward. And again, Jesus isn't dodging the question, right? But he says, then neither will I tell you, in verse 8, neither will I tell by what authority I do these things. What's Jesus saying to him? He's saying, you guys have already answered your own question. You've already shown your hand as unbelievers and, and as enemies of God. And so I don't need to go into by what authority. And he presses them to look inward and not try to create a, a false dichotomy where Jesus is the one who is, who's wrong and they're the ones who are right. Now, I didn't put these verses on the screen earlier, but how do, the, how do these folks respond? Do they repent and come to their senses? Well, the next thing Jesus does is he tells a story, tells a parable that's not very complimentary to the, to the Pharisees, to the leaders, but it's again, it's a warning for them to come back in repentance. How do they respond? In verse 19 of chapter 20, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. What they're doing is being actively resistant, right? At that very hour, you know, I don't know if you ever were, were so bad around your house that, you know, your mom said, I've had it up to here, right? And, you know, you want to say, well, you got just a little bit more, mom. You've had it up there. You got, you know, that, that's the wrong thing to say at that point. They had had it up to here and they're like, this is it. We've got to figure out a way, even if the people love them, to do him in. They were committed to their resistance. It'd be easy for me to say, what a bunch of really rotten guys. But then I look at my own heart and I examine my own motives. And while I have put my faith in Christ for salvation and I believe he's transforming me, he's changing me into the new person that he wants me to be. I certainly would not want to stand before you and say anything other than the truth. And the truth is that there certainly are silos in my life, so to speak, or corners of my life where I've kind of cordoned those off and said, now, Jesus, I don't want you to go there. That, that, I'm not quite ready to give that one up yet. And there are places where I, where, where I say I'm submitted to Christ. But really what I'm saying is, Jesus, who do you think you are? Right? Don't, don't, don't mess with that part of my life. But I do that, ironically, while I'm waving a palm branch and I'm singing, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm not that much different from the folks in this story. And Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, asked the same exact question of me and of you this morning. Who do you think you are in your light of your relationship with me? 
You see, Jesus wasn't trying to pick a fight with the scribes and the Pharisees. He was inviting them into new life. He was inviting them into salvation. He was inviting them into a relationship with him that would save their souls for all of eternity. And he's doing the same thing with you and with me this morning. So if you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever and you're wondering about Jesus. Think about it perhaps in terms of, of what would it look like to look at your life in light of a new relationship with him where you trust in him for your salvation, where you freely acknowledge you've been like the rest of us, one of those resistant people who, who have wanted to go your own way. But you see him now as Savior and Lord, and you want that new life. But for those of us who are believers, and I imagine there's a good number of us in this room this morning who, who profess faith in Christ and discipleship of him and following him, do we tend to compartmentalize? Do we tend to kind of box in one or two areas of our lives that we just, we're going to kind of hold on to them? And we, and we don't want Jesus to mess with them. I would encourage you, come up with at least one of those. I, I won't even press it that hard, right? But, but look into your soul, soul carefully. Ask God to reveal to you, where's a place where I'm resistant against you? And would you, would you break down the walls of my resistance? Would you help me see myself as lost and without hope if I'm not with you? But also realizing that, that I have new life in you. And I want to welcome you into every area of my life. Let me encourage you to, to not only to identify it, but to pray about it, but not only to identify it and pray about it, but maybe invite for the first time in your life an older brother or sister in Christ and tell them what your, what your little silo is. Tell them where your struggle is and ask them not only to pray for you, but to encourage you, to, to hold you accountable, to love you well as you seek to see your life through the lens of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your persistent grace. Uh, you didn't get into a war of words with the scribes and the Pharisees. You pointed out the truth. You pointed out their stubborn resistance. But as you did so, you were inviting them to turn and go a different direction. So, Father, I pray for all of us this morning that we would see our lives through our relationship with you. And if we came in this morning not believing, that we would leave as a believer. That we would give our lives to you say, Lord Jesus, I, I believe that I'm lost without you and hopeless without you. I've, I've been a resistant one, and I want to put my trust in you. But Lord, for those of us that are your disciples, uh, give us a spirit of honesty and a spirit of humility that we could freely admit there are places where I'm holding on. There are places that I don't want to let Jesus in. There are places where, he, even if I wouldn't verbalize it this way, it's a, Jesus, who do you think you are? Father, break our hearts over that sin that we would be more like him and that our lives would reflect his glory and his beauty and his grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.